Well, it's good to be back with you again. I kind of forgot it seems so long ago, but yeah, last week we were in Presbytu and the saints there say hi to you. They, we had a great time kind of installing their, um, their first pastor. So that was a really good time in Presbytu and um, feels like so long ago already. But uh, we, are, we are back. Thanks, Lauren, for preaching last week. Really appreciate that. And um, we are, like I said earlier, we are in our fourth... Uh, membership lecture, I don't know what you call these, but um, this is called Why Join Grace Bible Fellowship Part 2. We're just talking about who we are as a local church. And really one of the most important decisions that, that you will ever make is the decision about which local church you're going to join. We argued in this series that every Christian should be committed to a particular local church and that being settled, then we began to ask last time, what should we look for in a church? If we should be part of a church, well, what are we, what are we looking for when we think about a church to join? And so last time we talked about kind of various marks of a church. We talked about marks of a, a true church, marks of a healthy church. We looked through the book of First Timothy and we saw Paul's specific apostolic instructions for the church and what the church should look like. What we need to remember as we think about all this, though, is that this is, the church is, is really God's church. It is Christ's bride. She was purchased with His blood. And so we don't get to decide what the church wants to be or how the church should function. God has given us instructions in His Word that set the standard for the church. And scripture has more to say on this than, than really many people admit. And so if God has told us how the, how he designed the church to function, then we had better follow his directions. God has a plan to glorify himself through the church. And if our goal is to see it happen, then we had better make sure that we operate according to the scriptural model. And that's why last time when I began to lay out the distinctives of our church, we, we began with a high view of God. You see, God is our authority. He is our guide. Everything we do, we're to do for him. Everything we do, we want to do because he says so. And so the Lord is the one who sets the agenda for his church. And that means then secondly, that we need to obey his word. So we called the second distinctive of Grace Bible Fellowship a sufficient view of Scripture. We believe that the Scriptures are enough to help us live for God. The Scriptures are God-given revelation and are therefore sufficient to equip us for every good work that the Lord would have us do. And so there's nothing else necessary for us if we want to learn how to please God, we, don't, we really need nothing else in this life to prepare us for the next life except the Word of God, which is sufficient. It's everything that we need. And so those were the first two distinctives or the first two core convictions or foundational beliefs of our church. I think I, we called them the core convictions of Grace Bible Fellowship in the outline. And again, they were a high view of God, first of all, and then secondly, a sufficient view of Scripture. And these are meant here to function as reasons 
to join our church. Here's, here's why I think Grace Bible Church is a great church to join, because we have a high view of God, and we have a sufficient view of Scripture. We understand it to be inerrant, inspired. It's revelation from God, and it's meant to be followed. Now, last time, I, I believe I told you that there's actually six core convictions of our church. We went through the first two last time. Now we're going to go through the remaining four. And really, these are who we are or, or really what we strive to be, what we pray that we would be as a church. And, and we share them publicly so that, so that we can be kept accountable as a church to hold to these things. And so again, I'm going to give them to you all right now. The core convictions of Grace Bible Fellowship, first of all, again, a high view of God. Secondly, a sufficient view of Scripture. Thirdly, we have a proper view of man. We're going to kind of look at these today. Fourthly, an accurate view of the church. Fifth, a strong view of church leadership. And then sixthly, a clear view of doctrine. And we're going to try to, to go through these a little bit one by one. Um, I did cover these in some Sunday evening services in, in more detail. And, and honestly, I feel like there's so much here that I, I want to say today that I'm not going to be able to say. And so I would, I would kind of refer you to those if you want to find out more about these. But we've talked about God and we've talked about his word. And now as we think about what else, you know, controls our church, what else does our church believe? We start to look at, at man. You see, we denied last time that our aim is to please men, but still we recognize that as a church, our aim is to serve men. You see, we glorify God by participating in his work to save men from their sins. This is how God has designed to glorify himself by saving men and making them like Christ. And so at some point, we need to deal with men. You see, God himself through the scripture teaches us to put him first by ministering on his behalf to men. And so in order to do this, we really need what, what we're calling here a proper view of man. And that's the third point or the third core conviction of our church. Number three, a proper view of man. In order to minister to men for the glory of God, we, we need to understand who man is. And so what is man or, or who are we? And there, there's really two parts to that when you think about it. First, mankind was created in the image and the likeness of God. And that means that mankind has a special place among all of creation. See, only man, both male and female, only man, mankind were made in God's image of all the creatures that God made. And to see this, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, after creating all of the, the rest of the world and the animals, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I'm not going to go super deep into this today, but all we really want to see here is that we've been created by God in a way that we are somehow like God and that we are made to somehow represent him in the world. And this really sets us apart from the rest of creation. We are special and above and to be over the rest of creation. And again, if you just flip over to Genesis chapter 5 and look at verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And again, we were made like God in some undefined way. Really, really, Scripture doesn't define that. Maybe I would even say in some undefined ways, we were made like God. And, and, and our creation, in our creation, we were made to represent God in the world. That's the idea of this image and likeness. Now, that's the first thing that we need to know about man when we have a proper view of man. The second thing that we need to know about man is that man fell through Adam, the first man. And we'll come back to the fall in a minute, but before we do, we should note that even though we fell, we are still in the image of God. The fall is described in Genesis chapter um, 3, and then in Genesis chapter 9, and I want you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 9, look at verse 5 and 6. It says in verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And what we just see there is that even after the fall... Man was made in the image of God and continues to retain that image. Even the New Testament says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says that he, speaking about man, is the image and glory of God. And James chapter 3 and verse 9 talks about the sin of cursing people who are made in the likeness of God. And so even after the fall, we continue to bear the image and likeness of God. And so men and women, even though they're marred by sin, they're to be treated special because they've been made in the image of God. And this impacts our church because we see the value of every soul. Every person is precious because of who they are in the eyes of God. And that being said, we also recognize, though, something else about man. Man has fallen out of relationship with God and into sin. See, the first man, Adam, was our representative in the Garden of Eden. He was also our father. And we all came from him and and through him. And he sinned by eating the tree that God had commanded him not to eat from. And that sin had consequences for really all of mankind. His sin corrupted our race. And one of the best places to see this as we think about man is in Romans chapter 5. And so if you would turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.12 is really an important verse and really that whole section there, very important in, in all of scripture. 
We're just going to read verses 12 to 14 here, but it, it says here, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not, is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now what Paul's teaching here is that sin came through Adam. In Adam, our representative, all sinned. Now, we weren't here when Adam did that. We weren't even born yet, but, but we sinned because we all came from Adam. See, he was the head of the human race. He is the, the fountain, if you want to think about it that way. And he was our representative, and so in him, we all became sinners. And not only that, everyone from Adam to Moses, even on to today, everyone dies. You see that? Everyone dies. Even if, even if you didn't sin in the same way that Adam sinned, even if you didn't sin against, by transgressing a law, even if there was no known law given, because remember the law wasn't given until Moses, but even then, death reigned over all. And so God counts us as sinners worthy of death because Adam's sin has tainted us all. And not only that, all people since Adam have been born sinners. You see, Adam was born innocent, but he was capable of sinning. But everyone born since him was born guilty with a bent towards sin. And if you want to say, well, how do we know they were, were guilty? Well, all of them died. God counts the original sin of Adam that has corrupted our race as something that's worthy of death. A little bit later, we're going to go to Ephesians 2 and verse 3 and see that by nature, we are all children of wrath. And so scripture is, is really so clear on this, this corruption, this marring that has happened to our race through the sin of Adam. It's, it's really hard to believe that, that some will attempt to try to deny it, but it, it, it really, there are people that do that. And so I'm just going to read you a, a number of scriptures here as we think about the, the corruption of mankind. Right away after the fall in Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 5 gives this list of everyone who dies and dies and dies. Genesis chapter 6 is the beginning of the flood narrative where God destroys the whole world because of the sinfulness of mankind. And Genesis 6-5 is really important in that. It says that the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God looks down on the world and he sees the sinfulness of men and he looks down and he says, every intention of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. Something has happened to mankind. Again, again, in Genesis 8:21, the Lord said in his heart, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. First Kings 8:46 says, there is no one who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Psalm 143 and verse 2, David says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 asks, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? A rhetorical question, nobody can say that. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 15, another important text on this. Matthew 15, 18 to 20, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands do not defile the man. And so from our heart, from, from the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart come all of these evil and, and sinful things. And, and really, if you think about it, our own experience tells us the same thing, that, that mankind is sinful. People are wicked, and, and it begins really in their hearts. And if you look at the, the wicked things that happen in the world, it shows you that, that, that mankind has been corrupted. Man's heart is where evil thoughts originate. The heart is our, our thinking and our affections and our wills. And so the thinking and the, the loves and the will of man has been corrupted through the fall. And in fact, Scripture teaches then that, that really every part of man has been corrupted by sin. The, the whole man has been corrupted. Romans chapter 3 lays this out really clearly, so why don't we go over there. This is really Paul's summary of the state of man as he kind of lays out the, the way of salvation. And he draws this from the Old Testament. You see, the good news of the gospel really needs to begin with the bad news about men. And so Paul lays this out in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and then he says in, as a kind of a summary, starting in verse 10, he says, as it is written, now he's quoting from Old Testament or alluding to Old Testament in a, in a couple of these, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Paul's summary of the human race. This is really God's summary of the human race. race. Every part of man has been affected by sin. The, the heart, which is really the control center of man, we've already seen that in numerous verses. But now here, the, the rest of, the, of man is kind of laid out here. It's, it speaks about the throat, the tongues, the lips, the mouth, the feet, the, the ways of man, the paths of man, the, the eyes of men. Every part of man has been affected by sin and no one escapes this. 
or at least no one who hasn't been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ escapes this. We all come into the world in this way. And if you look here at the inclusive language that that Paul uses, he says, none, no one, no one again, not one, all have turned aside together, the, the whole of humanity together, and not even one. And again, as I said in Ephesians 2, 3, as Paul says in another place, we are by nature children of wrath. We are born into this world as slaves of sin. And even after we are saved, our biggest problem, the, the, the biggest problem with us is the remaining sin, the remnants of our flesh. That even though crucified with Christ as believers, still they, they must be put off by the power of the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts through the word. And so that even after we're saved, our biggest problem is our sin. And so although we're no longer in the flesh, the flesh continues to remain in us. And so there's this ongoing battle in the life of a believer That, that, that he needs to grow or she needs to grow into who he or she was saved to be. And so there's this continual battle in the life of every Christian to put off sin and to be like Christ and to become who we were saved to be. Now, there's really so much more that, that we could say about all this, but the goal here is, is really not to say everything, but just to help you understand what we believe, what our church believes, what's a a core conviction of our church. You see, our church sees man as fearfully and wonderfully made, and yet we also see man as a creature who has fallen and corrupted by sin, and and, and we must be rescued from this state, and yet man doesn't want to be rescued. You see, no man seeks for God. No one is righteous. No man has the righteousness inquired to enjoy, the the righteousness required to enjoy fellowship with God. See, all men are dead in their trespasses and sins. And what's needed then for man is nothing short of a miracle. You see, a supernatural work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit on par with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's what's necessary to save sinful man. And just to see that, why don't you go and and let's turn to the book of Ephesians, where really such an important text, in a way the, the first section of scripture that I ever was able to preach at our church here when I came and candidated and we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. But Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 is really a summary of that whole section. And it says there, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he summarizes it there and says, by grace you have been saved. See, to be saved by grace means to be made alive with Christ. And and what that really is, is a spiritual resurrection. You were dead and now you are alive. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, when he spoke of the, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so there's this 
power at work in the believer, in the life of those who believe that that's equivalent to the power that raised Christ from the dead. That's what is necessary to save sinful man. And so our view of man really directs everything that we do as a local church. You see, what we're looking for is for something supernatural to happen in the lives of sinners. We're looking for something supernatural. We're seeking something that we recognize that only God can do. You see, I think everyone agrees only God can save. Only God can save. We cannot save men. We cannot save ourselves. And so we can't do what we're called to do unless God in mercy is saving people by his grace. And so maybe you ask, well, what are we called to do? Well, again, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We're to make disciples of all of these sinful people in the world. We're to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who has saved these people and, and, and turned them and caused them to believe and repent. And we're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our commission. This is what we are called to do. And we do this knowing the previous verse, verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus has the authority to save and he is with us as we attempt to make disciples. He's with us as we baptize them and teach them to obey everything that he commanded us. And so our task is then simply to preach the gospel and to pray. Our our task is to teach the word of God and trust God to do a supernatural work that really we cannot do of ourselves. And so we trust God to work supernaturally to save sinners and to make them like Christ. And what that means then is that the gospel must be central to everything that we do as a church. And so we recognize the gospel that God is a holy God. We recognize that man is sinful and that there's this separation between God and man. The the sinful man and holy God are at enmity with one another. And Jesus is the only solution. He is God the Son and he came to be a new representative. He came to be a new Adam. And he alone lived a holy, acceptable life before God. And he died to pay the penalty for our sins. He bore the wrath of God in our place and he became a curse so that we could be blessed forever in God's presence. And our response to this good news is to repent and believe. And so again, as a church, we understand man's sin to be the greatest problem. And so our focus as a church, is going to be on helping men and women be saved from their sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then once saved, our focus is to help men and women put off their sin by spiritual growth through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so sin is our problem, and the answer, again, is found in the Word of God, in in the Gospel of God, 
in the sufficient word of God. And that's, that's every single time, every single problem that we deal with, whether it's a, a sin problem or a, a trial that we're, that's happening in our lives. The answer is again, the word of God every single time. And the foundational answer is the salvation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together to save mankind. And so what we're looking to see happen is not something that we can do in and of ourselves. It's not something that we can kind of work up and stir up. We are trusting in God to work through us. And so again, we need to do it according to his word because it's impossible for us to bring about any results of ourselves. And so that's, that's a, a proper view of man. And, and really tied into that then is, is also, um, the, the, the centrality of the gospel and a proper view of salvation. But second, or secondly tonight, today, number four in your outline, our second core conviction is, is something that we've talked about so much already, and, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's an, an accurate view of the church. And I just want to put this here again today just to emphasize this for us. You know, we've, we've already talked, as I said, about the importance of the church. It's God's plan. It's, it's God's work. It's God's design. It's the way that he works to save sinful people is through this church that he's building. It's the way that he works to, to grow us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we talked about the importance as well of, of being a committed member of a local church. But here I want to add a little bit more. Um, I want to talk a little bit about our responsibility to be involved. When we think about the local church, again, it, it, it's, it's all of us being involved. And sometimes when I've done membership classes, when, I, when I've done them at, at other churches or when I kind of designed some curriculum for this, I've spent a whole time speaking about our responsibility to be involved and, and then even opportunities to be involved in our church. Because this is really important. We, we you know, we, we have already kind of covered this a little bit in these classes. We've talked about our responsibility to be involved. And it's, and so it's, it's kind of come out, but I want to emphasize this again, that each member of the body has a responsibility to use his or her gifts to build up the body. Our responsibility is not merely to come and listen on Sunday and maybe give a little bit of, of money so that the services can continue. Our responsibility as members of a local church is to live out our salvation and use our spiritual and our natural gifts to build one another up in our faith. And this responsibility is carried out in both formal and informal ways. See, there's formal ways to serve, like things like setting up in the morning, tech team, sound team, music um, music ministry, ushers, teaching opportunities, things like that. There's, there's formal ways to serve, but there's also informal ways to serve. And these are just as important, and I, th- I think it's important that we hit on this a little bit. Informal ways to serve would be things like helping people in various ways, encouraging other believers, praying for the church and others, having people over for coffee or dinner or discussion or, or really biblical fellowship, being involved in the, the lives of people with an aim to edify them in Christ is, is really all of our responsibility. That's what each one of us is to do. 
And so again, the church isn't like a spectator sport that you can just come and watch and then go home. It's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be more like a family that you're part of and you serve that family for the glory of God. And so all of us are to be involved in various ways. This is what, what I, I mean when I say a, an accurate understanding of the church, that, that all of us are to be using our various gifts and the opportunities of our life. You know, there's, we recognize that at, at different times we have different amounts of opportunity and time. You know, like, you know, for, for some of you moms, as you hear about this, you know, you think, well, all I can do is, is raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that's a, that's a great service to the church. That's, that's part of it. Everything that we do for the glory of God is really part of what we do for the church, no matter how insignificant it is in the eyes of others. All of it contributes to the work that the church has been called to do. And so, um, you know, uh, uh, yeah. What else do I want to say about that? I think I've said so much about the church, but that's one of our core convictions is the importance. And so we have an accurate view of the church. Number five then is a strong view of church leadership, a strong view of church leadership. And, uh, I, you know, I've never really liked that word strong, but I, I don't know of another word. When I used to teach this class, I used to have little hand actions for all of these. And so we used to kind of do a strong view of the church. Um, and specifically here, speaking about church leadership, and, and honestly, we could spend hours and hours just talking about this one thing. We're not going to do that. Um, I have done, a, we did a multi-part series talking about biblical eldership. Uh, I did another Sunday evening service where we just talked about the leadership of our church. Um, you can read about it in our What We Teach statement, but um, we need to say something about the church leadership as we kind of do these membership classes. And so every church that you think about joining is going to have some form of church leadership. The question is, is it a biblical church leadership? You know, they say something like, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. And believers are called in Scripture to follow the example of their leaders with this caveat that it's to be done with discernment. I, w- I want you to turn here. Let's look at some of these. Let's go to Hebrews 13 and verse 7. You know, I don't, I don't think we could emphasize it enough how important the leadership is of, of any particular local church, but Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And so there's this call to follow the example of the leaders, but that's, again, to be done with discernment. Consider the outcome of their way of life. You know, I remember in seminary, one of my professors in a class on, on biblical eldership, he said something along the lines of that, that, that elders are to be an example of sanctification to the church. You, you should be able to look at your elders and say, there is a pattern of what it would look like if I was more conformed to Christ. And, and I remember that just really striking me in that moment, like, wow. You know, it's a, it's a serious calling to be an elder of a local church. 
Now, Scripture uses different words to speak about a church's leadership. In, in Hebrews here in 7 and, and 17, the word leaders is used. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So there's another way to speak about the leaders in a church. Those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Most often, though, Scripture uses one of, one of these three. It's overseers, elders, or pastors when it speaks about the leadership of a church. And those are not three different positions in church leadership. Rather, they're, they're really three different emphases of the one position. So the words are used interchangeably, elder, overseer, pastor. And they're, they're really used interchangeably throughout the New Testament in, in, in Acts Chapter 20, for example, in verse 17, Paul calls the elders of the church to meet him. And then he says to them a little bit later on in verse 28, so he's talking to the elders, and he says in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so the elders, Paul says, are overseers and it's their job to take care or to care for the church and that that verb there translated to care is actually more literally to shepherd the church of God which is where we get our word pastor from a pastor is really a shepherd and so the term elder speaks really mostly to the office to the the person who's been qualified and called and gifted to serve as a leader in the church An overseer speaks more to the task of that person or to the work of an elder. Elders are to oversee the ministry of the church and they're they're guardians, that's what that word means, they're guardians of the truth and of the people. So an elder, an overseer is a a guardian, somebody who oversees the ministry of the church. And then the term shepherd also really looks at the task or the work of an elder, but really in relation to the people, an elder is a shepherd or a pastor, and he's to care for the church. If you go with me then to the, let's go to First Timothy here again. First um, Timothy chapter, chapter three and verse, verse four, verses four and five. It says here about an elder or an overseer that he must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if he, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so there's the word manage there. That word manage is also translated over you. We already read that in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. That word manage is also, again, in chapter 5 and verse 17 of 1 Timothy. Go and, and flip over there. Here it's translated rule. It says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well, let the elders who manage well or who are kind of like over things well to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So these men, these elders, these leaders in the church, and, and they are to be men, Scripture's clear on that, and, and they're to lead to teach, to guard, to shepherd, to manage, to care for, to oversee, and and really have charge over the flock that's been entrusted to them. And for this ministry, Scripture tells us that they will give 
an account. James says even, even that, that they will be judged with a, a greater strictness. They're going to be a, a greater judgment for those who are teachers and leaders in the church. And because of the responsibility that's given to these men, they need to be godly representatives of Jesus Christ. Scripture is very clear on this. And if you just look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's just read this whole section starting in verse 1. Paul says here, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And notice what it says there. It says in verse 2, Therefore, because this is a a noble task, because this is an important office, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. And he, he must be those things in all of the ways that are listed there. That's God's standard for leaders in his church. And so if anyone wants to be an elder, Paul says, in, in, in my own words, I would say, that's great. It's a noble task, but an elder, an overseer then must be above reproach. And the one non-character related quality is in verse two, where it says that he also must be able to teach. Or Titus says it this way, he must, this is Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so an elder needs to be somebody who's able to teach and, and instruct people in sound doctrine and refute unsound doctrine. And so it's men, it's these men who are gifted and equipped who are called to lead the church. And scripture never speaks about another group in the church making decisions in the church. You know, there's, you, you look through scripture, you don't find any boards, you don't find elected representatives, there's no membership meetings, there's no votes that you can find in scripture. There's just these qualified men who are to be above reproach, whose ministry it is to care for the church, to care for the people, to teach them God's word, to lead them according to God's word. And scripture always has, except for in the case of of a Timothy or a Titus, where they're going to appoint these leaders, scripture always has a plurality, a a group of these men who work together in the church to to lead in the way that God has appointed. And, And it's and, and, and except for where you see Titus or Timothy coming and it's their job to come and establish the church and then appoint these elders. And Paul even told them in, in, or even told Timothy not to be hasty in, in this task of appointing elders. Look at 1 Timothy 5.22. Speaking about elders again, he comes back to elders. I'm in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 5.22. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, 
nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so at Grace Bible Fellowship, we have this model of church leadership, this model of, of leadership that we see right in the scripture. We have what, what is sometimes called the elder rule model of church government. And we take the qualifications of an elder very seriously. I think if you've kind of been around me for a while, you know that I take this task very seriously. We take the task of elders very seriously. And an elder is to be called and gifted and qualified. An elder is to be a shepherd, a, a pastor, teacher. And the elders together are to lead the church and, and we're to lead humbly as servants of the flock the way that the Lord taught us to lead with this humility and, and servant kind of leadership. And we're to lead biblically with a high view of God and a sufficient view of scripture and a proper view of men and a, a right understanding of salvation and a, a, an adequate view of the church and a strong view of church leadership. And now finally, all of what we said so far can, can really kind of come together to form our, our final core conviction. And this is number six, what, what I've called a clear view of doctrine. So the, the sixth distinctive thing, the sixth core conviction of our church is a, that we have a clear view of doctrine. This is who we are and who we strive to be. And if you think about it, everything that we've said so far in these membership sermons Everything that, that we've kind of brought to this point has, has been of a doctrinal nature. You see, uh, when you think about it, a high view of God, what is that? That's, that's theology proper. That's the study of God and His works. A sufficient view of Scripture, that's what they call bibliology. A proper view of man that we talked about, that's anthropology, the study of man. Or homardiology, which is the study of sin, that's what we talked about. We also talked about soteriology, the study of salvation. An accurate view of the church, they, they call that ecclesiology. Same with the church leadership, that comes under that category of ecclesiology, the study of the church, the church I think the one Greek term I taught you is ecclesia, uh, the, the church. The, the, the ecclesia is translated church or assembly. And that's exactly what scripture calls us to. I think you're still in 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. It says there, I, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you, and and again, Paul's writing to Timothy as he's going to appoint elders and kind of set up this church. I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, or I prefer the New American Standard translation there, to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, the church is the one institution and, and really a living organism, if we can put it that way. We are the one thing that has the truth. And our job is to support the truth. We're a pillar and buttress of the truth. And the truth, of course, is God's word. And so if we're going to be what we're called to be in Scripture, we need to understand the truth and we need to teach the truth and we need to believe it and we need to live it and we need to uphold it against all the lies of the world and the devil. And so at Grace Bible Fellowship, one of our core convictions is that we need to teach and preach sound doctrine. 
See, that's even in the Great Commission, right? In, in verse 20 again, Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus is telling us what we're supposed to do. We're to go and make disciples. And then in verse 20, he says, teaching them, teaching them. The disciples that we make are to be taught to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we take this task very seriously as a local church. And that's why you'll notice that our our statement of faith is much fuller than many other ones that maybe you've seen. Because we, we understand that we're to teach sound doctrine. And so we've thought through what, what do the scriptures teach? And we've thought through it in every area of theology. Now we haven't thought, taught through it exhaustively. Like, like I wouldn't say I know everything about everything. That's, that's for sure. There's, there's still much that, that I have to learn as your pastor. But we have thoroughly looked through the, the scriptures and decided what they teach. And so we call our statement of faith, we call it what we teach. And it's a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches in every area of theology. And the way that we look at this is we look at it, or at least I look at it as, as a promise to you. In these days of doctrinal compromise, this is where we stand. This is what we believe. This is what we will teach from this pulpit. It's what we will teach in private. It's what we will teach in every teaching ministry in our church. And again, we call it what we teach because we want you to know right up front who we are and what we believe. And we also recognize, as we kind of call it what we teach, that not everybody is going to be on the same page in every area. You see, we're all growing in our knowledge of Scripture, and we're all growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the, the, the grace of living out what we know about Him. And, and as a church, we recognize that. And so you don't have to be settled on every doctrine to join our church. You don't have to be able to sign off on our statement of faith and say that you believe all of those things. We just want you to know right up front what we're going to teach And we want to set your expectations then in the right place really early on. And what we really want for you is, is, and I've said this so many times, but what, what I really hope for is just that as we go verse by verse through scripture, you'll all, you'll also come to see that those things are what the Bible teaches. And, and, and we recognize that that takes time. And so it's okay if you're not sure about some of these doctrines. You know, so, so long as you're a Christian, you are welcome to join our church as a member. And I, I sincerely believe that. Remember, membership means that, that you're committing to serve the Lord together with this local church. And in light of that, what, what membership means is that what we're asking is that you truly commit to working together with us as we try to teach these things to the disciples that we're making in this place. In other words, don't try to work against us in, in this ministry. Don't, don't go around trying to teach contrary to or to unteach what the church has committed to teach. That's really what we ask of our members. You know, that would be working against the church and not serving together with us. And so if you're not convinced of something that we teach or, or you're convinced of some other doctrine, Really, all that we ask is that you seek to be teachable in that area. Work, work it through with the leadership first. You know, there's reasons why we believe what we believe in that statement, and there's resources that we would point you to if you have questions in any area. 
And so seek to be convinced from Scripture. And if you aren't or if you can't, then really you, you have a decision to make. You know, you have to ask yourself, can I serve in this church and serve with this church even though we disagree at this particular point of doctrine? And if you can, that's great. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we want. But if you can't, then I guess you'll need to find a church where you can serve in good conscience. And just to kind of maybe illustrate that a little bit, um, you know, at, at one particular church that I served at, um, you know, you'll, if you read our statement of faith, you'll see that we're cessationists. We don't believe that the, the, the supernatural spiritual gifts have continued. And so we don't teach people to speak in tongues. But there was a, a young man at our church that was convinced that in order to be a good Christian, he needed to teach every other good Christian around him to speak in tongues. And so we're trying to teach there's no tongues, it's, or, or even we're trying to teach what tongues is, that it's an actual you know, language, a, a known language, and he's trying to teach, in my mind, what's, what's gibberish. He wants to teach gibberish to everyone. We're saying that's not biblical. And so we, in fact, he ended up leaving before we could even have this conversation, but it's it just not going to work together if we're trying to teach two opposite things. And so he decided he couldn't be faithful to what he believed and serve the Lord together with us at that church. And so he went off somewhere else. And I think that's great. But if you, if you maybe aren't sure about the gift of tongues and you're not convinced that you got to teach everyone to speak in tongues, then you could serve just fine at our church as you kind of learn and, and you're just not going to teach people to speak in tongues. Um, and, and we can work together well in that area. And the same really goes for every other area as long as somebody is a true believer, a Christian. And so, that's kind of what we ask for our members as far as this area of, of what we teach. Now, before we leave this area of doctrine, uh, let me say one other thing. Some, some churches really seek to minimize doctrine and they, and they don't focus on doctrine. And what they teach or, or what is taught is, is really not so much of a concern for them. And it, and if you think about it, that in itself is a doctrinal Conviction. They have a conviction that doctrine isn't very important and they're not going to focus on it. I would say about that, I would say that that's a very unbiblical doctrinal conviction to think that doctrine isn't very important. The early church, remember, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching is how we grow in the Christian life. The, the, the word of God needs to affect our minds and renew it and transform our affections and our wills. And that's how we grow to be like Christ. And so teaching is, is in accord with godliness. First, uh, first Timothy 6, 3 and Titus 1, 1 has that, one of my favorite little sayings there, the truth that accords with godliness. You know, a church, as we just saw, is to be a, a in first Timothy 3, 15, it's to be the pillar and support of the truth. And so we're to, we're to preach the word. That means we need to know what the word teaches. And so either choosing either not to focus on doctrine or to be vague about doctrine or to be unclear on doctrine is a a form of doctrinal conviction of itself. And it's one that's going to hinder the growth of God's people. And so I I think that it's it's right for us to, to really be firm on what we believe, to really have studied the scriptures and know what we teach 
and, and now you can know where we're at on everything. And, uh, and that's what we call a clear view of doctrine. Well, I've laid out then as, as really as best as I know how, uh, our core convictions. This is who we are as a church. This is what we strive to be as a local church. We have a high view of God. We want to follow Him. This is His church, not ours. We have a sufficient view of Scripture. We think that Scripture has everything that we need to teach us how to, how to operate in this church, how to, how to help people grow to be like Christ, how to prepare them for heaven. We have a proper view of man. We see man both as, as this awesome thing created in the image of God, but also as fallen and, and needing a supernatural salvation. We have an accurate view of the church. We understand the importance of the church and its role in God's plan of, of working salvation and glorifying himself. We understand that all of us are to be involved in this work of, of the church, using our gifts, serving God, helping one another to grow to be like Christ. We have a strong view of church leadership, that they're to be qualified, godly, sanctified men who are to, to lead and shepherd and manage and all of those things that we looked at. The, the, the elders are the ones who, who set the direction for the church and guard the church and make sure that it's going in a biblical direction. And we have a clear view of doctrine. We know what we teach on in every area of theology, and it's, it's our commitment to continue to preach the scriptures and show those things to be true. And now then, as far as membership goes, it's, it's really up to you. This is who we are. We've kind of laid that out really as in, in all my weakness as, as best as I know how. This is who we are as a local church. This is what we strive to be and what we want to be. And so the question for you then is, is this a local church that you can partner with? Is this a local church that you can partner with? Is, is this a church that you can see, even though it's not perfect by any means, you can see that, that yes, I could serve the Lord together with this church that's going in this direction. And, uh, and if it is, that's, that's awesome. You know, 81 people so far have signed up to formally commit to serving the Lord here. And I, I really think that's a great number of people. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. There's a, there's a, a group that have, have so far committed to this process and are, are going to be joining this local church. And if we continue to put these things into practice, if we continue to live out these core convictions, I, I believe that the Lord is going to grow us and the Lord is going to make us into a Christ-like, God-glorifying church. Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for our time together in your word. We thank you for the way that, that you've directed us in all of these things and all of these core convictions and, and how you've shown us these truths from your word, Father. And we just pray again for us that, that we would be these things, that we would submit to you, that, that you would be our authority and that we would heed your word and that we would be effective in reaching sinful men in this world, that you would supernaturally work to draw people to Christ open their eyes, raise them from the dead in this place, that we would be the kind of church that you would have us to be. We pray, Father, that you would raise up elders in our midst, the elders who who are qualified and gifted and able to teach and able to refute false doctrine. And we pray, Father, that you would keep us doctrinally pure, that you would keep us true to your word in every area, Father. And, and where we are off, we pray you would would show us and teach us that we might follow you. 
We really desire these things. Father, we pray that you would, would bless those who are committed to join our church and that, that together we would serve you in a way that brings you great honor and glory in this place, in this community, in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.